0: Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who like books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 116, Who Knew? This episode of Lit is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. Carolina Homespun at carolinahomespun.com, and the Golden Gate Fiber Institute at goldengatefiberinstitute.org. And from here on out, at least for a while, you will notice a new uh, advertisement placement. Uh, I have an actual advertiser now. YourDegree.com. You'll see the banner on my website. As you know, all things education are near and dear to my heart, and I liked the kind of clearinghouse nature of YourDegree.com and also the fact that so, so many of us are in situations where it is nigh on impossible to get higher education in a conventional manner, uh, both because of time commitments and actual physical location constraints, and I like the idea that there's somewhere you can go to find out more about how to use the interweb (laughs) to your best advantage. So you will be hearing more from them in the future. I have a lot to say in a very short time uh, because I wanted to get you two chapters today. Chapter 42, All Alone, and Chapter 43, Surprises. Lots is happening in the book. But I also need to send out some thank yous. The first thank you is to Laura Ricketts, who sent me a book and a fabulous card with this gorgeous picture of her daughter spinning. She got to go to Rhinebeck, and it was wonderful to get actual, you know, tangible proof that Rhinebeck happened even without me. It was very sad. I hope next year the economy is such that uh, more of us can be mobile and maybe have a little craftlet party up there in the Northeast where it's cold. And wet and rainy. It's cooler here. It's 70, which <laughs> our listener Shannon in South Dakota is having an ice storm today. She, she texted me and I thought, oh, yeah, it's gonna be 80 here on Thursday. So that kind of puts it all into perspective. Really, positively, I would like to have a little weather. There is something wrong with having this much sunshine. But we have a winner for the month of October. Erin, our own Erin of fairy um, Fairy knitting, is the winner of our Quilting Arts book. I choose you guys at random, so there it is. I, I just kind of feel like the universe does what it does with my closed eyes and my hand in a bag of names. So, the Quilting Arts book, Erin, you now have a new hobby. Congratulations. <laughs> Sorry about that. For our November book, I was going to do one of the mixed media books, but I have received from two different people, a copy of the Mason Dixon Knitting Outside the Lines book. This is a wonderful, wonderful book, and rather than do something inappropriate with it, I would like to turn this around and turn it into a incentive for you, the listeners. So, the November book. If you donate during the month of November, you will be in the running for the Mason Dixon Knitting Outside the Lines book. This is the hardcover edition. It is beautiful, and as always, uh, Anne Shea and Kay Gardner have done uh, a marvelous job. I am in the middle of knitting uh, a few of their patterns. I really can't disclose how many of them because it would just be embarrassing. I continue to paint. The painting thing is going pretty well. I'm getting cards ready for the Tucson Museum of Art show. Our spinning and weaving guild always has a booth there and we all sell stuff and then the the guild takes a cut of whatever we sell. And I asked if there was any reason why I couldn't sell note cards. So I'm selling the little watercolor postcards and the larger five by seven watercolor cards that I've either painted directly onto, or I am archivally pasting um, a four by six print onto, or I am doing any one of another six different permutations of possibilities to get said watercolors onto said card stock paper, decal-edged cardstock. So I'm very excited about that. I have no idea how this will go, but it's, you know, something new, keeps us interested. I am also busy as a bee working away on my novel. This year... The novel's actually happening. I am around 30,000 words, which is way ahead of the game, but that's because I had really outlined a lot, and so a lot of this has been kind of typing rather than really thinking and writing. So we'll see what happens when I run out of notes. It could be kind of stalled there for a little bit, but I'm very happy with the way it's coming out, and, uh, and maybe I'll even read you guys a preview chapter or something like that uh, at the end of the month to let you know. I'm very excited about that. My husband is a good third of the way through his, and that's all well and good. Dogs are good. Boys are fine. Uh, Halloween included a run to the emergency room. Those of you who get my Twitter feed probably saw that. Uh, Thing two, tripped on the second set of stairs that we came to that was the second house and uh opened up his chin he was about 30 seconds away from getting the lidocaine shot for stitches when another doctor walked into the room and said that's ridiculous we can do this with glue so they glued his chin shut we've had let's see we've had emergency room we've had cocksacky, we've had uh long trips we've had dinners with my grandfather who is in various states of Copus Mentis. It has been a very interesting couple of weeks. So I'm sorry that I have not been here. It has just been insane. And the the problem really wasn't finding the time to podcast. It was finding the time to podcast when the house was quiet. I couldn't actually get to a quiet room for a long time which is frustrating because these chapters, the chapters that we're going to do today, this chapter 42 is one of my favorites because remember way back in the day when I said, I think I'm going to do Little Women next because people will be surprised about how current it is. I know because I've been watching the Ravelry notes go back and forth and I'm, I know because I get emails from you that you've already noticed how how very, very many chapters apply to us today. This one about Jo, I just find myself feeling so much in tune with her in this chapter because, (laughs) because she's feeling sorry for herself. And she does kind of, you know, kick herself into gear and say, oh, but she's alone Marmy has their father, and Amy has her art, and Meg has her kids, and Joe's alone. And before I got back together with my husband, after years apart, uh, after we had dated and broken up and, you know, had all of that drama that you do in your 20s, those of you who are in your 20s, you're in drama. It calms down <laughs> after a while. Um, I think all of us who got married in our late 20s or early 30s, or even later than that, all of us have felt, I think, what Joe is feeling in this chapter. And it is, I think, again, always fascinating to hear something that we think is such a modern state of mind resonate back over a hundred years. So it's it's a nice chapter. It's a simple chapter. It's a short chapter. It is, I think, a painfully modern chapter. So without any further ado, this is Joe. We're back to a Joe chapter. And the title is All Alone.
1: It was easy to promise self-abnegation when self was wrapped up in another and heart and soul were purified by a sweet example. But when the helpful voice was silent, the daily lesson over, the beloved presence gone and nothing remained but loneliness and grief, then Jo found her promise, very hard to keep. How could she comfort father and mother when her own heart ached with a ceaseless longing for her sister? How could she make the house cheerful when all its light and warmth and beauty seemed to have deserted it when Beth left the old home for the new? And where in all the world could she find some useful, happy work to do that would take the place of the loving service which had been its own reward? She tried in a blind, hopeless way to do her duty, secretly rebelling against it all the while, for it seemed unjust that her few joys should have lessened, her burdens made heavier, and life get harder and harder as she toiled along. Some people seemed to get all sunshine, and some all shadow. It was not fair, for she tried more than Amy to be good, and never got any reward, only disappointment, trouble, and hard work. Poor Jo. These were dark days to her, for something like despair came over her when she thought of spending all her life in that quiet house, devoted to humdrum cares, a few small pleasures, and a duty that never seemed to grow any easier. I can't do it. I wasn't meant for a life like this, and I know I shall break away and do something desperate if somebody doesn't come along and help me she said to herself when her first efforts failed and she fell into the moody miserable state of mind which often comes when strong wills have to yield to the inevitable but someone did come and help her though Joe did not recognize her good angels at once because they wore familiar shapes and used the simple spells best fitted to born humanity often she started up at night thinking Beth called her and when the sight of the little empty bed made her cry with the bitter cry of unsubmissive sorrow. Oh, Beth, come back, come back! She did not stretch out her yearning arms in vain. For as quick to hear her sobbing as she had been to hear her sister's faintest whisper, her mother came to comfort her. Not with words only, but the patient tenderness that soothes by a touch. Tears that were mute reminders of a greater grief than Jo's and broken whispers more eloquent than prayers. Because hopeful resignation went hand in hand with natural sorrow. Sacred moments when heart talked to heart in the silence of the night, turning affliction to a blessing, which chastened grief and strengthened love. Feeling this, Joe's burden seemed easier to bear. Duty grew sweeter and life looked more endurable. Seen from the safe shelter of her mother's arms. When aching heart was a little comforted, troubled mind likewise found help. For one day, she went to the study, and leaning over the good grey head, lifted to welcome her with a tranquil smile, she said very humbly, Father, talk to me as you did to Beth. I needed more than she did, for I'm all wrong. My dear, nothing can comfort me like this, he answered, with a falter in his voice, and both arms round her, as if he, too, needed help, and did not fear to ask for it. Then, sitting in Beth's little chair close beside him, Joe told her troubles. The resentful sorrow for her loss, the fruitless efforts that discouraged her, the want of faith that made life look so dark, and all the sad bewilderment that we call despair. She gave him entire confidence, he gave her the help she needed, and both found consolation in the act, for the time had come when they could talk together not only as father and daughter, but as man and woman, able and glad to serve each other, with mutual sympathy as well as mutual love. Happy, thoughtful times, there in the old study which Joe called the church of one member, and from which she came with fresh courage, recovered cheerfulness, and a more submissive spirit. For the parents who had taught one child to meet death without fear, were trying now to teach another to accept life without despondency or distrust, and to use its beautiful opportunities with gratitude and power. Other helps had Joe. Humble, wholesome duties and delights that would not be denied their part in serving her, and which she slowly learned to see and value. Brooms and dishcloths never could be as distasteful as they once had been, for Beth had presided over both, and something of her housewifely spirit seemed to linger around the little mob and the old brush, never thrown away. As she used them, Joe found herself humming the songs Beth used to hum, imitating Beth's orderly ways, and giving the little touches here and there that kept everything fresh and cozy, which was the first step in making home happy, though she didn't know it till Hannah said, with a proving squeeze of the hand, You thoughtful creature, you're determined we shan't miss that dear lamb, if you can help it. We don't say much, but we see it, And the Lord will bless you for it. See if he don't. As they sat sewing together, Jo discovered how much improved her sister Meg was. How well she could talk, how much she knew about good womanly impulses, thoughts and feelings, how happy she was in husband and children, and how much they were all doing for each other. Marriage is an excellent thing after all. I wonder if I should blossom out half as well as you have, if I tried it? Always provisin, I could, said Jo, as she constructed a kite for Demi in the topsy-turvy nursery. It's just what you need to bring out the tender womanly half of your nature, Jo. You are like a chestnut burr, prickly outside, but silky soft within, and a sweet kernel. If one can only get at it. Love will make you show your heart one day, and then the rough burr will fall off. Frost opens chestnut burrs, ma'am and it takes a good shake to bring them down. Boys go nothing and I don't care to be bagged by them, returned Joe, pasting away at the kite which no wind that blows would ever carry up, for Daisy had tied herself on as a bob. Meg laughed for she was glad to see a glimmer of Joe's old spirit, but she felt it her duty to enforce her opinion by every argument in her power. And the sisterly chats were not wasted especially as two of Meg's most effective arguments were the babies whom Joe loved tenderly. Grief is the best opener of some hearts, and Joe's was nearly ready for the bag. A little more sunshine to ripen the nut, then not a boy's impatient shake, but a man's hand reached up to pick it gently from the burr, and find the kernel sound and sweet. If she suspected this, she would have shut up tight, and bit more prickly than ever. Fortunately, she wasn't thinking about herself, so when the time came, down she dropped. Now, if she had been the heroine of a moral storybook, she ought at this period of her life to have become quite saintly, renounced the world and gone about doing good in a mortified bonnet, with tracts in her pocket. But, you see, Jo wasn't a heroine. She was only a struggling human girl like hundreds of others, and she just acted out her nature being sad, cross, listless, or energetic as the mood suggested It's highly virtuous to say we'll be good but we can't do it all at once and it takes a long pull a strong pull and a pull all together before some of us even get our feet set in the right way Jo had got so far she was learning to do her duty and to feel unhappy if she did not But to do it cheerfully, nah, that was another thing. She had often said she wanted to do something splendid, no matter how hard. And now she had her wish, for what could be more beautiful than to devote her life to father and mother, trying to make home as happy to them as they had to her. And if difficulties were necessary, to increase the splendor of the effort. What could be harder for a restless, ambitious girl than to give up her own hopes? plans and desires, and cheerfully live for others. Providence had taken her at her word. Here was a task, not what she expected, but better, because self had no part in it. Now how could she do it? She decided that she would try, and in her first attempt she found the helps I have suggested. Still another was given her, and she took it, not as a reward, but as a comfort as Christian took the refreshment afforded by the little arbor where he rested, as he climbed the hill called Difficulty. Why don't you write? That always used to make you happy, said her mother once, when the desponding fit overshadowed Joe. I've no heart to write, and if I had, nobody cares for my things. Well, we do. Write something for us, and never mind the rest of the world. Try it, dear. I'm sure it would do you good and please us very much. Don't believe I can, but Jo got out her desk and began to overhaul her half-finished manuscripts. An hour afterward, her mother peeped in, and there she was, scratching away with her black pinafore on, and an absorbed expression which caused Mrs. March to smile and slip away, well pleased with the success of her suggestion. Jo never knew how it happened but something got into that story that went straight to the hearts of those who read it. For when her family had laughed and cried over it, her father sent it, much against her will, to one of the popular magazines. And to her utter surprise, it was not only paid for, but others requested. Letters from several persons whose praise was honor followed the appearance of the little story. Newspapers copied it, and strangers as well as friends admired it. For a small thing, it was a great success, and Jo was more astonished than when her novel was commended and condemned all at once. I don't understand it. What can there be in a simple little story like that to make people praise it so, she said, quite bewildered. There is truth in it, Jo. That's the secret. Humor and pathos make it alive, and you've found your style at last. You wrote with no thoughts of fame or money, and put your heart into it, my daughter, as you have had the bitter, now comes the sweet. Do your best and grow as happy as we are in your success. If there's anything good or true in what I write, it isn't mine. I owe it all to you and Mother and Beth, said Joe. more touched by her father's words than by any amount of praise from the world. So taught by love and sorrow, Jo wrote her little stories and sent them away to make friends for themselves and her. Finding it a very charitable world to such humble wanderers, for they were kindly welcomed and sent home comfortable tokens to their mother, like dutiful children whom good fortune overtakes. When Amy and Laurie wrote of their engagement, Missus March feared that Joe would find it difficult to rejoice over it, but her fears were soon set at rest, for though Joe looked grave at first, she took it very quietly and was full of hopes and plans for the children, before she read the letter twice. It was a sort of written duet, wherein each glorified the other in lover-like fashion, very pleasant to read and satisfactory to think of, for no one had any objection to make. "'You like it, mother?' said Joe, as they laid down the closely written sheets and looked at one another. "'Yes, I hoped it would be so, ever since Amy wrote that she had refused Fred,' I felt sure then that something better than what you call the mercenary spirit had come over her, and the hint here and there in her letters made me suspect that love and Laurie would win the day. How sharp you are, Marmy, and how silent! You never said a word to me. Mothers have need of sharp eyes and discreet tongues when they have girls to manage. I was half afraid to put the idea into your head lest you should write and congratulate them before the thing was settled. I am not the scatterbrain I was, you may trust me. I am sober and sensible enough for anyone's confidant now. So you are, my dear, and I should have made you mine, only I fancied it might pain you to learn that your teddy loved someone else. Now, mother, did you really think I could be so silly and selfish after I would refused his love when it was freshest, if not best? I knew you were sincere then, Jo. But lately I have thought that if he came back and asked again, you might perhaps feel like giving another answer. Forgive me, dear, I can't help seeing that you are very lonely, and sometimes there is a hungry look in your eyes that goes to my heart. So I fancied that your boy might fill the empty place if he tried now. No, mother, it is better as it is, and I am glad Amy has learned to love him. But you are right in one thing. I am lonely. And perhaps if Teddy had tried again, I might have said yes. Not because I love him any more, but because I care more to be loved than when he went away. I'm glad of that, Joe, for it shows you are getting on. There are plenty to love you, so try and be satisfied with father and mother, sisters and brothers, friends and babies, till the best lover of all comes to give you your reward. Mothers are the best lovers in the world but I don't mind whispering to Marmee that I'd like to try all kinds. It's very curious, but the more I try to satisfy myself with all sorts of natural affections, the more I seem to want. I'd no idea hearts could take in so many. Mine is so elastic, it never seems full now, and I used to be quite contented with my family. I don't understand it. I do. And Mrs. March smiled her wise smile, as Joe turned back the leaves to read what Amy said of Laurie. It is so beautiful to be loved as Laurie loves me. He isn't sentimental, doesn't say much about it, but I see and feel it in all he says and does, and it makes me so happy and so humble that I don't seem to be the same girl I was. I never knew how good and generous and tender he was till now, for he lets me read his heart, and I find it full of noble impulses, and hopes and purposes, and I'm so proud to know it's mine. He says he feels as if he could make a prosperous voyage now, with me aboard as mate, and lots of love for ballast. I pray he may, and try to be all he believes me, for I love my gallant captain with all my heart, and soul, and might, and never will desert him, while God lets us be together. Oh, mother, I never knew how much like heaven this world could be when two people love and live for one another. And that's our cool reserved and worldly Amy. Truly love does work miracles. How very, very happy they must be. And Joe laid the rustling sheets together with a careful hand as one might shut the covers of a lovely romance, which holds the reader fast till the end comes, and he finds himself alone in the workaday world again. By and by Jo roamed away upstairs, for it was rainy and she could not walk. A restless spirit possessed her and the old feeling came again, not bitter as it once was, but a sorrowfully patient wonder, why one sister should have all she asked, the other nothing. It was not true, she knew that and tried to put it away. But the natural craving for affection was so strong and Amy's happiness woke the hungry longing for someone to love with heart and soul and cling to while God let them be together. Up in the garret where Joe's unquiet wanderings ended stood four little wooden chests in a row, each marked with his owner's name and each filled with the relics of the childhood and girlhood ended now for all. Jo glanced into them, and when she came to her own, leaned her chin on the edge, and stared absently at the chaotic collection, till a bundle of old exercise books caught her eye. She drew them out, turned them over, and relived that pleasant winter at kind Mrs. Kirk's. She had smiled at first, then she looked thoughtful, next sad, and when she came to a little message written in the professor's hand, her lips began to tremble. The book slid out of her lap, and she sat looking at the friendly words, as it took a new meaning and touched a tender spot in her heart. Wait for me, my friend. I may be a little late, but I shall surely come. Oh, if only he would! So kind, so good, so patient with me always, my dear old Fritz. I didn't value him half enough when I had him. But now how I should love to see him, for everyone seems going away from me, and I'm all alone. And holding the little paper fast, as if it were a promise yet to be fulfilled, Joe laid her head down on a comfortable rag bag, and cried, as if in opposition to the rain, pattering on the roof. Was it all self pity? Loneliness or low spirits? Or was it the waking up of a sentiment which had bided its time as patiently as its inspirer? Who shall say? End of chapter 42.
0: Which reminds me. <laughs> my sister got engaged to her German. <laughs> My mom is actually over in Berlin right now and uh, celebrating with the two of them. They are engaged, and who knows when they're going to actually get married, because they're both either finishing or have just finished their PhDs and are looking for work, which you can imagine in this current climate. (laughs) it's a bit of a challenge. So we don't even know what country they're going to wind up living in, but we are all very, very happy. So since I had started off uh, at the beginning of this calendar year saying, oh, I wonder if they're going to get engaged. They are now. I thought I should tell you. So the self-pity thing, all of that, been there, done that, walked that walk, talked that talk, passed it happily, and on to new things. So chapter 43 is called Surprises, and and especially following the last chapter, I find this one to be one that is uh, extremely satisfying. It, it reminds you, well, it reminds me an awful lot of the first book, uh, the first half of, of Little Women. It's kind of the coming together of all of the main players once again, of course, with the absence of Beth, which is deeply felt. And I did find myself tearing up. Uh, a number of times when I listened to both Chapter Forty Two and this chapter, Chapter Forty Three, which I think is right and appropriate uh, when you've when you've lost a a character that's so loved, and um, so many of you have have written in and, and written posts or letters that I've I've read on the podcast about Beth's importance and Beth's place in the novel and Beth's place in the novel when we look at it in a modern context and. Um, and so I I do think that it's appropriate that there is some melancholy in this chapter, which is otherwise a very happy one, and it's called Surprises. I think there's probably a reason why Alcott follows 42 with 43, and, um, and it does us a world of good to remember that as hard, as it is, life goes on. It just doesn't do it right away. And that, that's the hard part. So, uh, I'm going to turn you over to Chapter 43, Surprises. Jo was alone
2: in the twilight, lying on the old sofa, looking at the fire and thinking. It was her favorite way of spending the hour of dusk no one disturbed her and she used to lie there on best little red pillow planning stories dreaming dreams or thinking tender thoughts of the sister who never seemed far away her face looked tired grave and rather sad for tomorrow was her birthday and she was thinking how fast the years went by how old she was getting and how little she seemed to have accomplished Almost twenty-five, and nothing to show for it. Joe was mistaken in that. There was a good deal to show, and by and by she saw and was grateful for it. An old maid, that's what I'm to be. A literary spinster, with a pen for a spouse, a family for children, and twenty years hence a morsel of fame, perhaps. When, like poor Johnson, I'm old and can't enjoy it, solitary and can't share it, independent and don't need it. Well, I needn't be a sour saint nor a selfish sinner. And, I dare say, old maids are very comfortable when they get used to it. But... (sighs) And there Joe sighed, as if the prospect was not inviting. It seldom is, at first, and thirty seems the end of all things to five and twenty. But it's not as bad as it looks, and no one can get on quite happily if one has something in oneself to fall back upon. At twenty-five, girls begin to talk about being old maids, but secretly resolve that they never will be. At thirty, they say nothing about it, but quietly accept the fact and if sensible, console themselves by remembering that they have twenty more useful happy years in which they may be learning to grow old gracefully. Don't laugh at the spinsters, dear girls, for often very tender, tragic romances are hidden away in the hearts that beat so quietly under the sober gowns, and many silent sacrifices of youth, health, ambition, love itself make the faded faces beautiful in God's sight. Even the sad, sour sisters should be kindly dealt with, because they have missed the sweetest part of life, if for no other reason. And looking at them with compassion, not contempt, girls in their bloom should remember that they too may miss the blossom time, that rosy cheeks don't last forever, that silver threads will come in the bonny brown hair, and that by-and-by, kindness and respect will be as sweet as love and admiration now. Gentlemen, which means boys, be courteous to the old maids, no matter how poor and plain and prim. For the only chivalry worth having is that which is the readiest to pay deference to the old, protect the feeble, and serve womankind regardless of rank, age, or color. Just recollect the good aunts who have not only lectured and fussed, but nursed and petted too often without thanks, the scrapes they have helped you out of, the tips they have given you from their small store, the stitches the patient old fingers have set for you, the steps the willing old feet have taken, and gratefully pay the dear old ladies the little attentions that women love to receive as long as they live. The bright-eyed girls are quick to see such traits and will like you all the better for them. And if death, almost the only power that can part mother and son, should rob you of yours, you will be sure to find a tender welcome and maternal cherishing from some Aunt Priscilla, who has kept the warmest corner of her lonely old heart for the best nevy in the world. Joe must have fallen asleep as I dare say my reader has during this little homily. For suddenly, Lori's ghost seemed to stand before her, a substantial lifelike ghost leaning over her with the very look he used to wear when he felt a good deal and didn't like to show it. But like Jenny in the ballad, she could not think it he, and lay staring up at him in startled silence till he stooped and kissed her. Then she knew him, and flew up, crying joyfully. "'Oh, my teddy! Oh, my teddy! "'Dear Joe, you are glad to see me, then?' "'Glad? My blessed boy, words can't express my gladness. "'Where's Amy?' "'Your mother has got her down at Meg's. "'We stopped there, by the way, "'and there was no getting my wife out of their clutches.' "'You're what?' cried Joe.' for Laurie uttered those two words with an unconscious pride and satisfaction which betrayed him. Oh, the Dickens, now I've done it. And he looked so guilty that Joe was down on him like a flash. You've gone and got married. Yes, please, but I never will again. And he went down upon his knees with a penitent clasping of hands and a face full of mischief, mirth, and triumph. Actually married? Very much so, thank you. "'Mercy on us! What dreadful thing will you do next?' And Joe fell into her seat with a gasp. "'A characteristic but not exactly complimentary congratulation,' returned Laurie, still in an abject attitude, but beaming with satisfaction. "'What can you expect when you take one's breath away, creeping in like a burglar and letting cats out of bags like that? "'Get up, you ridiculous boy, and tell me all about it.' Not a word unless you let me come in my old place and promise not to barricade. Joe laughed at that, as she had not done for many a long day, and patted the sofa invitingly, as she said in a cordial tone, The old pillow is up Garret, and we don't need it now, so come and fess, Teddy. How good it sounds to hear you say Teddy. No one ever calls me that but you. And Laurie sat down with an air of great content. What does Amy call you? My lord. That's like her. Well, you look it. And Joe's eye plainly betrayed that she found her boy comelier than ever. The pillow was gone, but there was a barricade nevertheless. A natural one raised by time, absence, and change of heart. Both felt it, and for a minute looked at one another as if that invisible barrier cast a shadow over them. It was gone directly, however, for Laurie said with a vain attempt at dignity, "'Don't I look like a married man and the head of a family?' "'Not a bit, and you never will. "'You've grown bigger and bonnier, but you are the same scapegrace as ever.' "'Now really, Joe, you ought to treat me with more respect,' began Laurie, "'who enjoyed it all immensely. "'How can I, when the mere idea of you married and settled,' Is so irresistibly funny that I can't keep sober,' answered Jo, "'smiling all over her face so infectiously that they had another laugh "'and then settled down for a good talk, quite in the pleasant old fashion. "'It's no use your going out in the cold to get Amy, "'for they are all coming up presently. "'I couldn't wait. "'I wanted to be the one to tell you the grand surprise "'and have first skim, as we used to say when we squabbled about the cream.' "'Of course you did, and spoiled your story by beginning the wrong end. "'Now start right and tell me how it all happened. I'm pining to know.' "'Well, I did it to please Amy,' began Laurie with a twinkle that made Joe exclaim. "'Fib number one. Amy did it to please you. Go on and tell the truth if you can, sir.' "'Now she's beginning to marm it. Isn't it jolly to hear her?' said Laurie to the fire." and the fire glowed and sparkled as if it quite agreed. It's all the same, you know, she and I being one. We planned to come home with the Carols a month or more ago, but they suddenly changed their minds and decided to pass another winter in Paris. But Grandpa wanted to come home. He went to please me, and I couldn't let him go alone. Neither could I leave Amy. And Mrs. Carroll had got English notions about chaperones and such nonsense. "'and wouldn't let Amy come with us. "'So I just settled the difficulty by saying, "'Let's be married, and then we can do as we like. "'Of course you did. "'You always have things to suit you. "'Not always. "'And something in Lori's voice made Joe say hastily, "'How did you ever get Aunt to agree?' "'It was hard work, but between us we talked her over, "'for we had heaps of good reasons on our side,' "'There wasn't time to write and ask leave, "'but you all liked it, "'had consented to it by and by, "'and it was only taking time by the fetlock, "'as my wife says.' "'Aren't we proud of those two words, "'and don't we like to say them?' "'interrupted Jo, addressing the fire in her turn, "'and watching with delight the happy light "'it seemed to kindle in the eyes "'that had been so tragically gloomy "'when she saw them last. "'A trifle, perhaps.' She's such a captivating little woman, I can't help being proud of her. Well, then Uncle and Aunt were there to play propriety. We were so absorbed in one another, we were of no mortal use apart. And that charming arrangement would make everything easy all round, so we did it. When, where, how, asked Jo, in a fever of feminine interest and curiosity. For she could not realize it, a particle... Six weeks ago, at the American Consuls in Paris, a very quiet wedding, of course, for even in our happiness we didn't forget dear little Beth. Joe put her hand in his as he said that, and Laurie gently smoothed the little red pillow, which he remembered well. Why didn't you let us know afterward, asked Joe, in a quieter tone, when they had sat quite still a minute. We wanted to surprise you, We thought we were coming directly home at first, but the dear old gentleman, as soon as we were married, found he couldn't be ready under a month at least and sent us off to spend our honeymoon wherever we liked. Amy had once called Valrosa a regular honeymoon home, so we went there and were as happy as people are but once in their lives. My faith wasn't it love among the roses. Lori seemed to forget Joe for a minute, and Joe was glad of it for the fact that he told her these things so freely and so naturally assured her that he had quite forgiven and forgotten. She tried to draw away her hand, but as if he guessed the thought that prompted the half-involuntary impulse, Laurie held it fast and said, with a manly gravity she had never seen in him before, Joe, dear, I want to say one thing and then we will put it by forever. As I told you in my letter, when I wrote that Amy had been so kind to me, I never shall stop loving you, but the love is altered, and I have learned to see that it is better as it is. Amy and you changed places in my heart, that's all. I think it was meant to be so, and would have come about naturally if I had waited, as you tried to make me, but I never could be patient, and so I got a heartache. I was a boy then, headstrong and violent, and it took a hard lesson to show me my mistake. For it was one, Joe, as you said, and I found it out after making a fool of myself. Upon my word, I was so tumbled up in my mind at one time that I didn't know which I loved best, you or Amy, and tried to love you both alike, but I couldn't. And when I saw her in Switzerland, everything seemed to clear up all at once. You both got into your right places, and I felt sure that it was well off with the old love before it was on with the new. That I could honestly share my heart between Sister Cho and wife Amy, and love them dearly. Will you believe it and go back to the happy old times when we first knew one another? I'll believe it with all my heart, but Teddy, we never can be boy and girl again. The happy old times can't come back and we mustn't expect it we are man and woman now with sober work to do for playtime is over and we must give up frolicking i'm sure you feel this i see the change in you and you'll find it in me i shall miss my boy but i shall love the man as much and admire him more because he means to be what i hoped he would "'We can't be little playmates any longer, "'but we will be brother and sister "'to love and help one another all our lives, won't we, Laurie?' "'He did not say a word, but took the hand she offered him "'and laid his face down on it for a minute, "'feeling that out of the grave of a boyish passion "'there had risen a beautiful, strong friendship to bless them both.' "'Presently,' Joe said cheerfully, for she didn't want the coming home to be a sad one. I can't make it true that you children are really married and going to set up housekeeping. Why, it seems only yesterday that I was buttoning Amy's pinafore and pulling your hair when you teased. Mercy me how time does fly. As one of the children is older than yourself, you needn't talk so like a grandma. I flatter myself I'm a gentleman growed, as Peggy said of David. And when you see Amy, you'll find her rather a precocious infant," said Laurie, looking amused at her maternal air. You may be a little older in years, but I'm ever so much older in feeling, Teddy. Women always are, and this last year has been such a hard one that I feel forty. Poor Joe, we left you to bear it alone while we went pleasuring. You are older. Here is a line, and there's another. Unless you smile, your eyes look sad. And when I touched the cushion just now, I found a tear on it. You've had a great deal to bear, and had to bear it all alone. What a selfish beast I've been. And Laurie pulled his own hair with a remorseful look. But Joe only turned over the traitorous pillow and answered, in a tone which she tried to make more cheerful. No, I had father and mother to help me and the dear babies to comfort me, and the thought that you and Amy were safe and happy to make the troubles here easier to bear. I am lonely sometimes, but I dare say it's good for me, and... You never shall be again, broke in Laurie, putting his arm about her, as if to fence out every human ill. Amy and I can't get on without you, so you must come and teach the children to keep house, and go halves and everything, just as we used to do, and let us pet you, and all be blissfully happy and friendly together. If I shouldn't be in the way, it would be very pleasant. I begin to feel quite young already, for somehow all my troubles seemed to fly away when you came. You always were a comfort, Teddy. And Jo leaned her head on his shoulder just as she did years ago when Beth lay ill, and Lurie told her to hold on to him. He looked down at her wondering if she remembered the time but joe was smiling to herself as if in truth her troubles had all vanished at his coming you were the same joe still dropping tears about one minute and laughing the next you look a little wicked now what is it grandma i was wondering how you and amy get on together like angels yes of course but which rules I don't mind telling you that she does, now, at least I let her think so. It pleases her, you know. By and by we shall take turns, for marriage, they say, halves one's rights and doubles one's duties. You'll go on as you begin, and Amy will rule you all the days of your life. Well, she does it so imperceptibly that I don't think I shall mind much. She is the sort of woman who knows how to rule well. In fact, I rather like it, for she winds one round her finger as softly and prettily as a skein of silk and makes you feel as if she was doing you a favor all the while. That ever I should live to see you a hen pecked husband and enjoying it, cried Joe with uplifted hands. It was good to see Laurie square his shoulders and smile with masculine scorn at that insinuation as he replied with his high and mighty air, Amy is too well-bred for that, and I am not the sort of man to submit to it. My wife and I respect ourselves and one another too much ever to tyrannize or quarrel. Joe liked that and thought the new dignity very becoming, but the boy seemed changing very fast into the man and regret mingled with her pleasure. I am sure of that. Amy and you never did quarrel as we used to. She is the sun and I the wind in the fable, and the sun managed the man best, you remember. She can blow him up as well as shine on him, laughed Laurie. Such a lecture as I got at Nice. I give you my word it was a deal worse than any of your scoldings, a regular rouser. I'll tell you all about it sometime, she never will, because after telling me that she despised and was ashamed of me, "'she lost her heart to the despicable party "'and married the good-for-nothing. "'What baseness! "'If she abuses you, come to me and I'll defend you.' "'I look as if I needed it, don't I?' "'said Laurie, getting up and striking an attitude, "'which suddenly changed from the imposing to the rapturous. "'As Amy's voice was heard calling, "'Where is she? Where is my dear old Joe?' "'In trooped the whole family, "'and everyone was hugged and kissed all over again.' and after several vain attempts, the three wanderers were set down to be looked at and exulted over. Mr. Lawrence, hale and hearty as ever, was quite as much improved as the others by his foreign tour, for the crustiness seemed to be nearly gone, and the old-fashioned courtliness had received a polish which made it kindlier than ever. It was good to see him beam at my children, as he called the young pair, it was better still to see Amy pay him the daughterly duty and affection which completely won his old heart. And best of all, to watch Laurie revolve about the two, as if never tired of enjoying the pretty picture they made. The minute she put her eyes upon Amy, Meg became conscious that her own dress hadn't a Parisian air, that young Mrs. Moffatt would be entirely eclipsed by young Mrs. Lawrence, and that her ladyship was altogether a most elegant and graceful woman. Joe thought, as she watched the pair, how well they look together. I was right, and Lori has found the beautiful, accomplished girl who will become his home better than clumsy old Joe, and be a pride, not a torment to him. Mrs. March and her husband smiled and nodded at each other with happy faces, for they saw that their youngest had done well not only in worldly things, but the better wealth of love, confidence, and happiness. For Amy's face was full of the soft brightness which betokens a peaceful heart. Her voice had a new tenderness in it, and the cool prim carriage was changed to a gentle dignity, both womanly and winning. No little affectations marred it and the cordial sweetness of her manner was more charming than the new beauty or the old grace. For it stamped her at once with the unmistakable sign of the true gentlewoman she had hoped to become. Love has done much for our little girl, said her mother softly. She had a good example before her all her life, my dear, Mr. March whispered back, with a loving look at the worn face and gray head beside him. Daisy found it impossible to keep her eyes off her pity auntie, but attached herself like a lapdog to the wonderful Chatelaine full of delightful charms. Demi paused to consider the new relationship before he compromised himself by the rash acceptance of a bribe, which took the tempting form of a family of wooden bears from Bern. A flank movement produced an unconditional surrender, however, for Lori knew where to have him. Young man, when I first had the honor of making your acquaintance, you hit me in the face. Now I demand the satisfaction of a gentleman. And with that, the tall uncle proceeded to toss and tousle the small nephew in a way that damaged his philosophical dignity as much as it delighted his boyish soul. Blessed if she ain't in silk from head to foot, "'Ain't it a relishin sight to see her settin' there as fine as a fiddle "'and hear folks calling little Amy Miss Lawrence?' muttered old Hannah, "'who could not resist frequent peeks through the slide "'as she set the table in a most decidedly promiscuous manner. "'Mercy on us how they did talk, first one, then the other, "'then all burst out together trying to tell the history of three years in half an hour. "'It was fortunate that tea was at hand,' to produce a lull and provide refreshment, for they would have been hoarse and faint if they had gone on much longer. Such a happy procession as filed away into the little dining room, Mr. March proudly escorted Mrs. Lawrence, Mrs. March as proudly leaned on the arm of my son, the old gentleman took Joe with a whispered, You must be my girl now, and a glance at the empty corner by the fire that made Joe whisper back, I'll try to fill her place, sir. The twins pranced behind, feeling that the millennium was at hand, for everyone was so busy with the newcomers that they were left to revel at their own sweet will, and you may be sure they made the most of the opportunity. Didn't they steal sips of tea, stuff gingerbread ad libitum, get a hot biscuit apiece? And, as a crowning trespass, didn't they each whisk a captivating little tart into their tiny pockets, there to stick and crumble treacherously, teaching them that both human nature and a pastry are frail? Burdened with the guilty consciences of the sequestered tarts, and fearing that Dodo's sharp eyes would pierce the thin disguise of cambric and merino, which hid their booty, the little sinners attached themselves to Grandpa who hadn't his spectacles on. Amy, who was handed about like refreshments, returned to the parlor on Father Lawrence's arm. The others paired off as before, and this arrangement left Joe companionless. She did not mind it at the minute, for she lingered to answer Hannah's eager inquiry. Will Miss Amy ride in the coop and use all them lovely silver dishes that's stored away over yonder? Shouldn't wonder if she drove six white horses, ate off gold plate, and wore diamonds and point lace every day. Teddy thinks nothing too grand for her, returned Joe, with infinite satisfaction. No more there is. Will you have hash or fish balls for breakfast? Asked Hannah, who wisely mingled poetry and prose. I don't care. And Joe shut the door, feeling that food was an uncongenial topic just then. She stood a minute looking at the party vanishing above, and as Demi's short plaid legs toiled up the last stair, a sudden sense of loneliness came over her so strongly that she looked about her with dim eyes, as if to find something to lean upon, for even Teddy had deserted her. If she had known what birthday gift was coming every minute nearer and nearer, she would not have said to herself, I'll weep a little weep when I go to bed. It won't do to be dismal now. Then she drew her hand over her eyes, for one of her boyish habits was never to know where her handkerchief was, and had just managed to call up a smile when there came a knock at the porch door. She opened with hospitable haste, and started as if another ghost had come to surprise her. For there stood a tall bearded gentleman, beaming on her from the darkness like a midnight sun. "'Oh, Mr. Bear, I'm so glad to see you,' cried Jo, with a clutch, "'as if she feared the night would swallow him up before she could get him in. "'And I to see Miss Marsh. "'But no, you have a party.' "'And the professor paused as the sound of voices "'and the tap of dancing feet came down to them. "'No, we haven't, only the family. "'My sister and friends have just come home, "'and we are all very happy.' Come in and make one of us. Though a very social man, I think Mr. Bear would have gone decorously away and come again another day. But how could he when Joe shut the door behind him and bereft him of his hat? Perhaps her face had something to do with it, for she forgot to hide her joy at seeing him and showed it with a frankness that proved irresistible to the solitary man whose welcome far exceeded his boldest hopes. "'If I shall not be Monsieur de Trope, "'I will so gladly see them all. "'You have been ill, my friend.' "'He put the question abruptly, "'for as Joe hung up his coat, "'the light fell on her face, "'and he saw a change in it. "'Not ill, but tired and sorrowful. "'We have had trouble since I saw you last.' "'Ah, yes, I know. "'My heart was sore for you when I heard that.' "'And he shook hands again with such a sympathetic face.' that Joe felt as if no comfort could equal the look of the kind eyes, the grasp of the big warm hand. Father, mother, this is my friend Professor Bear, she said, with a face and tone of such irrepressible pride and pleasure that she might as well have blown a trumpet and opened the door with a flourish. If the stranger had any doubts about his reception, they were set at rest in a minute by the cordial welcome he received everyone greeted him kindly for joe's sake at first but very soon they liked him for his own they could not help it for he carried the talisman that opens all hearts and these simple people warmed to him at once feeling even the more friendly because he was poor for poverty enriches those who live above it and is a sure passport to truly hospitable spirits Mr. Bear sat looking about him with the air of a traveler who knocks at a strange door, and when it opens, finds himself at home. The children went to him like bees to a honeypot, and establishing themselves on each knee, proceeded to captivate him by rifling his pockets, pulling his beard, and investigating his watch with juvenile audacity. The women telegraphed their approval to one another, and Mr. March feeling that he had got a kindred spirit, opened his choicest stores for his guest's benefit, while Silent John listened and enjoyed the talk, but said not a word, and Mr. Lawrence found it impossible to go to sleep. If Joe had not been otherwise engaged, Lori's behavior would have amused her, for a faint twinge, not of jealousy, but something like suspicion, caused that gentleman to stand aloof at first and observe the newcomer with brotherly circumspection but it did not last long he got interested in spite of himself and before he knew it was drawn into the circle for mr bear talked well in this genial atmosphere and did himself justice he seldom spoke to laurie but he looked at him often and a shadow would pass across his face as if regretting his own lost youth, as he watched the young man in his prime. Then his eyes would turn to Joe so wistfully that she would have surely answered the mute inquiry if she had seen it. But Joe had her own eyes to take care of. In feeling that they could not be trusted, she prudently kept them on the little sock she was knitting, like a model maiden aunt. A stealthy glance now and then refreshed her like sips of fresh water after a dusty walk, for the sidelong peeps showed her several propitious omens. Mr. Bear's face had lost the absent-minded expression and looked all alive with interest in the present moment, actually young and handsome, she thought, forgetting to compare him with Laurie, as she usually did strange men to their great detriment. Then he seemed quite inspired, though the burial customs of the ancients, to which the conversation had strayed, might not be considered an exhilarating topic. Jo quite glowed with triumph when Teddy got quenched in an argument and thought to herself, as she watched her father's absorbed face, how he would enjoy having such a man as my professor to talk with every day. Lastly, Mr. Bear was dressed in a new suit of black, which made him look more like a gentleman than ever. His bushy hair had been cut and smoothly brushed, but didn't stay in order long. For in exciting moments, he rumpled it up in the droll way he used to do, and Joe liked it rampantly erect, better than flat, because she thought it gave his fine forehead a jove-like aspect. Poor Joe, how she did glorify that plain man, as she sat knitting away so quietly, Yet letting nothing escape her, not even the fact that Mr. Bear actually had gold sleeve buttons in his immaculate wristbands. Dear old fellow, he couldn't got himself up with more care if he'd have been going a-wooing, said Jo to herself. And then a sudden thought, born of the words, made her blush so dreadfully that she had to drop her ball and go down after it to hide her face. The maneuver did not succeed as well as she had expected, however, For though just in the act of setting fire to a funeral pyre, the professor dropped his torch, metaphorically speaking, and made a dive after the little blue ball. Of course, they bumped their heads smartly together, saw stars, and both came up flushed and laughing without the ball to resume their seats, wishing they had not left them. Nobody knew where the evening went to, For Hannah skillfully abstracted the babies at an early hour, nodding like two rosy poppies, and Mr. Lawrence went home to rest. The others sat round the fire, talking away utterly regardless of the lapse of time, till Meg, whose maternal mind was impressed with a firm conviction that Daisy had tumbled out of bed, and Demi set his nightgown afire, studying the structure of matches, made a move to go we must have our sing in the good old way for we are all together again once more said joe feeling that a good shout would be a safe and pleasant vent for the jubilant emotions of her soul they were not all there but no one found the words thoughtless or untrue for Beth still seemed among them a peaceful presence invisible but dearer than ever since death could not break the household league that love made dissoluble the little chair stood in its old place the tidy basket with a bit of work she left unfinished when the needle grew so heavy was still on its accustomed shelf the beloved instrument seldom touched now had not been moved and above it Beth's face serene and smiling as in the early days "'looked down upon them, seeming to say, "'Be happy. I am here.' "'Play something, Amy. "'Let them hear how much you have improved,' said Laurie, "'with a pardonable pride in his promising pupil.' "'But Amy whispered with full eyes "'as she twirled the faded stool. "'Not tonight, dear. I can't show off tonight.' "'But she did show something better "'than brilliancy or skill, "'for she sang Beth's songs "'with a tender music in her voice,' which the best master could not have taught, and touched the listeners' hearts with a sweeter power than any other inspiration could have given her. The room was very still when the clear voice failed suddenly at the last line of Beth's favorite hymn. It was hard to say. Earth hath no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. And Amy leaned against her husband, who stood behind her, feeling that her welcome home was not quite perfect without Beth's kiss. "'Now we must finish with Mignon's song, for Mr. Bear sings that,' said Joe, before the pause grew painful. And Mr. Bear cleared his throat with a gratified as he stepped into the corner where Joe stood, saying, "'You will sing it with me. We go excellently well together.' A pleasing fiction, by the way, for Joe had no more idea of music than a grasshopper. But she would have consented if he had proposed to sing a whole opera and warbled away, blissfully regardless of time and tune. It didn't much matter, for Mr. Bear sang like a true German, heartily and well. And Joe soon subsided into a subdued hum that she might listen to the mellow voice that seemed to sing for her alone. NOTEST THOU THE LAND WHERE THE CITRON BLOOMS, USED TO BE THE PROFESSOR'S FAVORITE LINE, FOR DAS LAND MEANT GERMANY TO HIM. BUT NOW HE SEEMED TO DWELL WITH PECULIAR WARMTH AND MELODY UPON THE WORDS, THERE OR THERE MIGHT I WITH THEE, O MY BELOVED, GO. AND ONE LISTENER WAS SO THRILLED BY THE TENDER INVITATION THAT SHE LONGED TO SAY SHE DID KNOW THE LAND AND WOULD JOYFULLY DEPART THITHER WHENEVER HE LIKED. The song was considered a great success, and the singer retired covered with laurels. But a few minutes afterward he forgot his manners entirely, and stared at Amy putting on her bonnet, for she had been introduced simply as my sister, and no one had called her by her new name since he came. He forgot himself still further when Laurie said, in his most gracious manner, at parting, "'My wife and I are very glad to meet you, sir.' Please remember that there is always a welcome waiting for you over the way. Then the professor thanked him so heartily, and looked so suddenly illuminated with satisfaction, that Laurie thought him the most delightfully demonstrative old fellow he ever met. I too shall go, but I shall gladly come again, if you will give me leave, dear madame, for a little business in the city will keep me here some days. He spoke to Mrs. March. But he looked at Joe, and the mother's voice gave as cordial an assent as did the daughter's eyes, for Mrs. March was not so blind to her children's interests as Mrs. Moffat supposed. "'I suspect that is a wise man,' remarked Mr. March, with placid satisfaction, from the hearth-rug, after the last guest had gone. "'I know he is a good one,' added Mrs. March, with decided approval as she wound up the clock." I thought you'd like him was all Joe said as she slipped away to her bed. She wondered what the business was that brought Mr. Bear to the city and finally decided that he had been appointed to some great honor somewhere but had been too modest to mention the fact. If she had seen his face when safe in his own room, he looked at the picture of a severe and rigid young lady with a good deal of hair who appeared to be gazing darkly into futurity, it might have thrown some light upon the subject, especially when he turned off the gas and kissed the picture in the dark.
0: End of chapter 43 I just love that ending to that chapter. And I also, I don't know, those of you who are married, When you were, when you first met the man that you chose to marry, did you go through this thing that Joe is going through where you really, really wanted him to meet your parents because you knew that they would like him? I wonder, I wonder if that's something that still goes on. I always thought that I was rather old fashioned for having gone through that, but it was very, very important to me that at some point soon, my husband meet my family um, before he was my husband. I don't know what that impulse is. If it's because you want him to be part of your family, you know, the extended family, or if it's approval that you're looking for, or if it's because you have found something so wonderful that you want to share it with the people who are most important to you or something else entirely. But I'm curious to know from you, if you went through it too. It is a curious thing now that I'm thinking about it, because you spend so much of your your teens and your 20s trying to prove that you are different, (laughs) and you are your own person, and you are separate from your parents. And then when this big thing happens, that's where you go back to. I suppose that's kind of the point of family, isn't it? that it's supposed to be that place that you have to strike out from. And then it's the safe place that you go back to when you need to touch back and make sure that everything's okay. Speaking of everything okay, I hope everything is okay with you. It has been, as we know, quite an adventurous couple of weeks between Halloween and the election and a new president, breaking ground right, left, and center. Uh, I hope us all a safe and peaceful and prosperous four more years or four new years and uh, I hope you all continue to be well during this week that's coming up. I don't anticipate that I will have any more lapses so don't forget that this month the incentive is Mason Dixon Knitting Outside the Lines For anyone who donates during the month of November. Library is available on the show notes page at craftlit.blogspot.com. And I think that's it for me. I am going to go write a novel. Have a great week. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlit. Please go to Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. Carolina Homespun at Carolinahomespun.com and the Golden Gate fiber Institute.org. You can find a blog for this podcast at craftlit.blogspot.com. That's craftlit C-R-A-F-T-L-I-T, all one word, blogspot B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T. Or at craftlit.libsen.com. Libson is L I B. SYN and of course you can subscribe at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous donations of its listeners and for that I am truly grateful. And don't forget if your hands are too busy to pick up a book at least you can turn one on.